Well, when my children were a bit younger, uh, one of them later in their high school days got very interested in musical theater. I won't say which one, but it wasn't any of my sons. Um, and I experienced on several occasions uh, some fine musical theater, which every now and then I do enjoy, uh, and every now and then maybe not so much. Uh, but if you were to open up Luke's gospel, at least in the first act, it is a musical. Uh, it is interesting that within these first two chapters, four songs come in fast succession, one after the other. And so I want us to see this morning as we look at this text concerning Mary's Magnificat, first and foremost, a new song. You will see that our text opens with a song that should catch our attention just right off the bat. I mean, why all the singing? Mary will sing this, what we call the Magnificat, uh, Zechariah's tongue that has been, you know, tied for a chapter will suddenly be loosed as he begins to sing what we call the Benedictus. When the angels arrive for a second time in chapter 2, they will break out in the glory and excelsis. And finally, when Simeon encounters the child in the temple, he can't help but sing that song that we sing every week at the conclusion of our service. Song after song after song after song in just two short chapters of the gospel. I mean, why all the singing? Well, the text is filled with song, as we've heard even last week, because something new is happening in Israel. When something new happens, when God brings about a new reality, when He acts, oftentimes you see singing in Scripture. You see this with the song of Moses and Miriam. Once Pharaoh is cast into the Red Sea, song breaks out to memorialize and also theologize the event. When Sisera is killed uh, with a tent peg, you will notice Deborah and the people take up singing immediately after. I mean, we know this even in our own stories. You know, when the Wicked Witch of the East has a house suddenly land on her, uh, everyone breaks out singing, ding dong, the witch is dead. You know, it's what we do to say that things have turned, that something new has taken place and is worth memorializing and also, if you will, editorializing or theologizing. We're defining the events that have happened. And so Luke, by putting these songs in such quick succession, is keying us in as readers to say, something big is happening in this text. Something different than we've seen in the rest of Scripture to where person after person we encounter can't help but sing a new song concerning what's taking place. Well, whatever is happening in Luke is so large that it requires all this singing. So what is the event? Well, you know, we normally counter these texts during uh, Advent and Christmas, so we're, we're springing ahead a little bit this year. Uh, but we have seen two angels in Luke's gospel so far that have announced two babies to two different women. So whatever the singing has to do with it has to do with kids. We know that much. But as much as we see this commonality between Elizabeth and Mary, they have angelic visits. They're both given children. Uh, they both, you know, uh, are hiding these things in their heart as God has blessed them. As soon as you see the commonality, you also see the stark difference. We have one mother, Elizabeth, who is barren and aged. Uh, a story that we have heard time and time again in Scripture. 
You know, from the book of Genesis onward, there have been people struggling with childbirth that God then blesses and gives a child in their late years. Even that song that we heard this morning concerning Hannah and the gift of children that were given to her as she was barren. But of course, while that's Elizabeth's story, Mary's is quite different. We have one who's not even wed and barely entering her teen years. She's anywhere from 13, 14, 15 years old. Not struggling with barrenness, or at least not that we would know of, because she has yet to even encounter a man, and yet God comes to her without the same need as Elizabeth and tells her that she too will be with child. This is a new story. While Elizabeth is old and has been retold to us time and time again in the Old Testament record, Mary's song, I mean, Mary's situation is quite new a virgin with child by the power of the Holy Spirit. Further, when Mary, this teen girl, encounters Elizabeth in the, the, the section previous to our song that we just read, the child in Elizabeth's womb, moved by the Holy Spirit, leaps for joy at the entrance of Mary. And so there's all these indicators that whatever or whoever is in Mary's womb is a really big deal and will change the history of Israel and her fortunes forever. And so Mary's song acknowledges that. At some level, you know, the, uh, the great traditional Christmas hymn, Mary, Did You Know? Um, uh, that's a joke, not great traditional hymn, not great on a lot of levels, but uh, did she know? She knew a lot. Uh, there was plenty she didn't know, as we'll see in our text this morning. But she knew enough to sing this song. She knew that whoever was in her womb had everything to do with a long list of promises that God had made beforehand in the Old Testament. And she begins to recount those promises and recount God's faithfulness and honor Him concerning how He's fulfilling all that He has told Israel through what's taking place within her. What is happening in her, yes, is for Mary. She is blessed. But it's going to be a blessing for the nation. And that baby that's in her womb is somehow, according to her, according to the last verse of our song, is God remembering His mercy to Abraham and to our fathers of old. So, I mean, going back to the very first chapters of the Bible, she says, this kid shows that God keeps his mercy to Abraham. Her song displays this, and you see it because it's dripping with Old Testament references. There's hardly a line of this song that is unique to Mary. Uh, you know, many commentators will say Mary couldn't have actually composed this because it's far too intricate for a, for a teen girl. Uh, but if she was a teen girl that had been raised on the Old Testament Scriptures, all she's doing is borrowing lines from all over the Old Testament. You heard those lines from 1 Samuel chapter 2 that she puts into her own mouth. She quotes several Psalms. She quotes the book of Deuteronomy and Habakkuk. She takes all of these lines of Scripture and makes, if you will, a collage of them saying, all of these things that God has said in the past are now coming to one point here with this kid who now dwells within me. And the clear thrust of the song, hopefully you saw it when we read it, is a reversal of fortunes. God is going to act in such a way that he will change things for his people from bad to good, 
from lowliness to exaltation. And those who are oppressing them will be taken from their high places and will be brought low. I mean, that is often, isn't it, what, what leads to our praise. When we ask God about a situation, we've got something going on, and we say, Lord, we don't like this. We would really prefer it to look like that. And at times, God does act, and he reverses our situation, and that leads to our thanksgiving. Well, Mary is speaking in that way, and from, cha- from verses 51 on, you'll notice it's all in the past tense. God has already acted in such a way where these things, at least by the word she's speaking, are apparently coming true. Mary sings of the change that the whole nation of Israel has prayed for. I mean, think of Israel's situation, surrounded by unrighteous rulers. Yes, they're dominated by Rome, but even those who rule in their own land, Herod and others, are so corrupt and so against everything they stand for as a nation under God that it's painful for them. They're under pretty onerous taxation at this time in their history. Uh, They're overrun uh, uh, by, by not only godless government, but military in their own cities. And they're surrounded by unrighteousness. And Mary sings about this change that not only she has prayed for, but the whole nation has longed for for years and years and years. Notice, God will scatter the proud. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones. He will send the rich away empty. I do like the old language. He will send the rich empty away. There's something better about that. He will exalt the humble and fill the hungry because he remembers his mercies based on his promises to Abraham. I mean, this is what Israel has been waiting for seemingly forever, if you've read your Bible. They've always wanted to be in the land. They've always wanted to be ruled by good, uh, a good king. They've always wanted, in one sense, to prosper in the face of the nations, and so rarely has that happened. And we see in Mary the beginning and the sign of this whole new reality. Something new has happened, and Israel will never be the same afterward. Notice, Mary really is a symbol of the nation. This young woman with no pedigree from a a, a nowhere town, a place of no import. It's like when you tell people you're from Temecula, and then they look at you funny, and you say, oh, well, you know, San Diego, but north, you know. Uh, She's from a town like that, but even, you know, it's closer maybe to uh, San Jacinto. Uh, She's from a nowhere town with no money. They are impoverished, and yet God says you are highly favored and exalted to such a place that you will be called the most blessed among women. Her personal experience foreshadows what she's singing about, you'll notice, for the nation. This poor nation under subjugation with no regard among the powers that be is going to be exalted, at least according to this song. And what is more, it's sung as if it's already done. He has done these things from verses 51 and following. God is keeping his promises. Israel will be delivered. The wicked will be cast down. The mighty brought low. The world with all of its disorder and all of its messiness will finally be set straight. Starting, according to the song, right now. 
I mean, it's as good as done. Everything is new. Well, that's the new song. But if we look at this text carefully, we'll notice there's another song playing at the same time, the same old song. I mean, if it's true, as we will learn in Luke, that everything has changed in the coming of Christ, Luke will also tell us some other things are true at the same time that make this real hard at times to believe. I mean, think of Mary. She sang this song a long, long time ago. And if you click on the news on any given day, you will find that all the same horrors and all the same disparities and all the same power struggle still exists right now that existed way back then. And so it seems like her song, uh, as optimistic and wonderful as it is, didn't seem to come to pass the way that she thought it would. I mean, think of all the ungodly oppressors who still use their positions of power and prestige to exalt themselves, to hold down other people, to enrich themselves while they impoverish others. There is still hunger. There is still poverty. The proud and the haughty seem to be getting along just fine in this day and age. There doesn't seem to be some grand reckoning that's happened or is coming anytime soon, at least not by what we can visibly see. I mean, so what gives? Was Mary just wrong? I mean, were these just uh, the pregnancy hormones leading to over-enthusiasm? How can she say these words and yet live in the world that she lives in? I mean, it's hard for us to reconcile. But if it's hard for us to reconcile, I mean, imagine Mary's predicament. And she believes this is all true, and I'm here to tell you this morning that it is all true. And as she is visited with further affirmations after this, both at the manger and at the temple, God will reaffirm to her that what she is declaring really is taking place. But she will also stand at a foot of a cross and watch these same powers that be, both the unrighteous in Israel and the unrighteous in Rome, ground her little boy to powder under the machinery of political power and expediency. And it just looks like nothing's changed. Everything rolls along like it always has in this same old world. I mean, think about it. The rich and the powerful and the proud seem to be doing just fine by the end of Luke's gospel. No one seems to be usurped by the time you close the last chapter. And 70 years after Mary singing this song, Rome's going to come in and destroy the temple in Jerusalem and leave the whole place empty. The rich are not sent empty away. God's people, once again, are left desolate and decimated while the world powers exalt themselves. It's a song as old as time. And Mary's song doesn't seem to interrupt the common flow of history at all. Even though she's saying as she sings it, everything changed today. So what do we do with this? Well, these are the questions that your own heart asks, even if you don't articulate it this way. I mean, uh, we come to Christ 
We want a better life. We want a better world. Maybe you watch the news and you long for something different, some different storyline to eventually hit your ears, but year after year, the characters change, but the predicament remains the same. But it doesn't seem like our salvation has much to do with this. And so we content ourselves, you know, with the comfort of saying, well, it brings inner peace and it brings hope, you know, in the midst of turmoil, even though we don't have any hope that it's going to change anything in the actual world that we live in. And so we relegate Jesus' salvation to some holy, invisible thing that God gave us, maybe to polish up our souls while we let our outer lives just rust away and eventually get decimated. I mean, the bottom line is this. We still want a reversal, don't we? I mean, we want what Mary's singing about. We, we want the proud to be brought down and those who are in power and abusing it to be removed from their places. We want the humble to be exalted. I mean, there's so much wrong in the world that we wish were right. There's so much disordered in our own lives that we pray that God would fix, but the world keeps on moving without a seeming care about those things. So did something new really happen in Luke chapter 2? Or is it all a farce? Have you ever wondered exactly what Jesus fixed? I know we're not supposed to say these things out loud in church, but I mean, when will the proud be cast down? When will the rich be sent away empty? Will and what's wrong finally be made right? And think about those words. And do you feel them? Let me ask this, are you really ready to say them? Are you really ready to say, God, destroy all the proud? God, damn all the rich. If we are ready to say that, let me ask this. If God's coming to destroy the proud, would He be able to pass you by? If God's coming to empty out the rich and send them packing with nothing, do you think He'll knock down your door? I mean, how many Americans will He visit? Do you know that our impoverished in this country have more wealth than most of the world's uh, considered middle class? I mean, the impoverished in our country, according to uh, the latest surveys, all have a oversized 40-inch-plus television set. Uh, they have a video game console. Everyone has a cell phone, and the family owned at least one automobile. More impoverished people in America struggle with obesity than with hunger. Now, that does say something about the way that uh, some of our systems work and the kind of food, unfortunately, that uh, is affordable. But what it does say is that uh, what we consider rich and what the world considers rich might be two dramatically different things. I mean, we cry out for justice, and that is right, and there is something deep in us that cries out for those things, but as soon as you do, you also condemn yourself. I mean, God is going to judge it all. He really is. I mean, every last action in this world, yours included, mine included. But there is hope in this song. 
There is hope in this child now in the womb because though he was rich beyond all measure, for our sakes he became poor. Though he was very God of very God, begotten, not made, he humiliated himself not just to a manger, but he humbled himself even to death on a cross. And it was on that cross that God exposes what Mary's talking about. He exposes his mighty arm. This is his most mighty act to save. But it also exposes how deep his mercies run. Right? His arm will act for us, his mighty arm, because of his mercies from generation to generation. God is so strong that he lays down his life for his friends, but also, as we learn in Romans, he laid down his life while we were still enemies. And he did it because he keeps his word, because he keeps his promises to Abraham. And to do so, he had to remember mercy because no one, not one of us would be left standing if this was solely based on justice. If it was based on our merits, we would all be brought low. But the mighty one regarded our lowly estate and he got even lower in order that we might be raised up. And if it's the cross that tells us of our true condition, it does tell us that. I mean, if we will look there, it really tells us who we are, <laughs> where we fit in Mary's song, where we fit in the story. I mean, if you think you have a reason to be proud, and you can know by the way you talk during the week, if there's a lot of how dare people treat you like that, or don't talk to me that way, or you deserve to be first, uh, or if you're just the topic of every conversation, you're plenty proud. If you don't think you're proud, or if you think you have a reason to be proud, something to stand on, I mean, look at the cross and see our God dying there. And let it humble you. I mean, if you think you are rich, see him emptied there and let it put on full display your actual poverty. And if you think you should be exalted, look at the one who was raised up on a cross and let it cast you down. Because if you do, there's good news. I mean, if you see that you are dead broke when it comes to righteousness, God promises He will make you filthy rich with His own righteousness. If you realize that you are way too pompous in light of your own track record, that you think way too highly of yourself, and if that brings you low, God says, great, because I exalt those who humble themselves. Anyone who comes to Jesus empty-handed and begging never gets sent away hungry, but is always filled. You see, God does have plans on the whole world. That's real. That's not just a fairy tale that Mary's singing about. God really is going to bring down every false government, every proud ruler, every rich person that thinks they can make it on their own without any help from God. 
But because God also had plans on you, there were more pressing matters that he had to deal with in order that you might be brought near to him, exalted to his right hand, given riches without measure, and a place and a standing that you'll never be able to deserve. And because that's true, Christ first came in his humiliation in order that you would never have to suffer that humiliation, but instead would be exalted. So we can sing this song because it is true. We just can't see it yet. But this day is coming to pass. And because God is merciful, we're not part of the judgment, but rather we are part of God's exaltation. So may we put our hope in Him afresh this morning and sing these songs uh, with, with new eyes, if you will. Let's pray.